Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CU180, Hate Crimes, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 290, May the 3rd, 1993. At this time, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and myself will discuss hate crimes. I think before beginning, it is important to analyze the serious problem there is in that term. We have the naive assumption in our day that love is good and hate is bad. But let's put that on a more concrete term. Is love good if you love a rapist? Or is hate bad if you hate a rapist and rape? In other words, the two terms are relative. They are not things in abstraction that uh, can have a meaning apart from a concrete and particular instance. In the Bible, we are commanded to love our enemies. But at the same time, we are not to love God's enemies. And it is presented as a virtue that David said, Do I not hate them that hate thee? Yea, I hate them with a perfect hatred. In other words, hate and love are not in and of themselves good or bad. It depends on what it is you love and what it is you hate. So we have a problem here because there is simplistic thinking. What hate crimes represent or the mentality that is behind them is essentially not only simplistic but sentimental. The assumption is that if everybody will love everybody and everything, all will be well with our world. And that's a thoroughly untenable opinion. We live in a world where each thing must be assessed, and there are some things indeed we should love and some things we should hate. So hate crimes are now the crimes that certain people feel that uh, those they dislike are guilty of. If you do not like what they represent, you're guilty of a hate crime. If they hate you in return, it is a virtue on their part because you are evil. So we've reached a very, very childish level, I believe, when we talk about hate crimes. Douglas? Well, Thackeray said whom we fear more than we love, we are not far from hating. And uh, government has is using hate crimes as a tool uh, to create guilt, and uh, it's it's a divide and conquer uh, methodology. The uh, the hate crime thing is fairly 
fairly recent as far as actually prosecuting people, uh, to my knowledge. But uh, the whole concept of not being able to dislike someone without committing a crime is, uh, is relatively new. Uh, this country was founded on tolerance of uh, divergent views, and uh, we've lost that. Well, yes. Can you force? Can you force all of us to like each other? I mean, would would a, a reasonable government undertake such a effort? I'm glad you said reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know of one, by the way? No, I don't. No, I don't. But this comes up regarding the homosexuals. When I look at them, I am nauseated by thoughts of what they do with each other. They make my stomach royal. Now, what can the government do about that? How am I supposed to like them? And I suspect that what is involved here is not as innocent as it looks on the surface. I think it comes closer to what Rush was talking about. I think hate crimes, we all suspect that if hate crimes are enacted, and some of them have been in some states, and applied, that some groups will be declared sacred and other groups will be, will be declared guilty on sight. Yes under the name of hatred. You can be called homophobic, but yes. you can't call them Christophobic. Well, what can we, s we have no term for their dislike of straight people. Mm -hmm. They dislike heterosexual sex mm -hmm. or any references to it. They get an expression of disgust on their face. What can we say about that expression? Is it hatred of normal people? Heterophobic. Heterophobic. That's mm -hmm. a good one. Well, hate, hate is a part of our nature, part of our fallen nature, that we do hate. Uh, when somebody steals, they, they hate. Their envy is, is the hatred that they feel for anyone who has something that they don't have. And uh, hate's very much a part of human nature. To, so the, to associate hatred with crime is nothing new. It's a way to create a new category of crime to put someone on the defensive. Because if you tell someone you shouldn't hate, you're saying that they should love, they should like. And if I once I start saying I can't I can't hate, I can't dislike those who are accusing me of crimes, you're on the total you, you you've lost the battle. You've lost freedom. You've lost your inner right not to like strawberries. I mean, who is to tell us what to like? Hatred comes from your moral perspective. What do you hate and what do you love? Yes. And if you can't hate that which you consider evil, then you're saying you have to accept it. Yes, what we have today with these people who call certain things hate crimes 
is their attempt to impose their faith, their religion, and their morality on the rest of us. So the whole concept of uh, hate crimes is an aspect of a religious war aimed at us who are Christians. Should I tell again the anecdote about my grandfather and myself? Mm-hmm. At a family gathering, and I was, I don't know how old, not too old. Had a cousin there that I didn't like, and I walloped him a couple of times, and his mother went into a fit and dragged me before the Supreme Court, which was my grandfather, Philip Scott. And I was interrogated with his, this, my aunt standing there with her arms folded. Had, did you hit him? I said, yes. Why did you hit him? I said, I didn't like him. I don't like him, I said. And he said, well, you hit him because you don't like him? Uh, just for that reason? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, you felt you had a right to hit him because you didn't like him? I said, yes. He said, well, you don't have that right. I said, you mean I have to like him? He said, oh, no, you don't have to like him, but you have to be just. And that stuck with me to this day because it made sense. Whatever happened to that cousin? (laughs) I didn't ever get to like him, (laughs) but I never hit him again. (laughs) Well, I hope he was grateful to your grandfather. But this is what the courts are telling us, uh, we have to like them. Yes. Now, I've never considered a criminal attacking somebody to be done out of hatred. To me, the essence of a criminal is a person who treats other people as objects, who might be in his way for some goal of his own. And in that category, I put psychologists and educators who use who make experiments using living students and patients and clients anyone who treats other people as objects mm-hmm. inferior to themselves a criminal will hit you over the head or sh- or shoot you or hurt you because he wants your money or because you're in his way in some form or another does not necessarily have any hatred involved at all How can the uh, U.S. Supreme Court rationalize as simply an expression, burn the American flag, and then classify painting a swastika on a building as a hate crime? They're both expressions of thought according to the first definition. The second thought, it's a hate crime. So it depends on the thought. Well, we have a growing problem in our culture because we have been based since Hegel to a degree and especially since Darwin on the conflict of interests concept. If you believe that metaphysically basic to the nature of being is an inescapable conflict of everything in the world, If nature is red in tooth and claw, if every animal and every uh, atom in all creation is at odds with everything else, then you are going to create a culture in which everybody 
dislikes everybody else. If you go back more than two centuries, in fact, less in some areas, you find that uh, there was no great antipathy to people of different races. No. They merged readily into the population of Christendom. The only question was one of faith. And whether they were people from Africa brought by uh, sailing vessels who signed them on, or people from the Far East similarly brought, if they settled in Europe, all was well as long as they became Christian. They disappeared in the general population in due time. And it was because you had a, <clears throat> basically uh, a harmony of interest society. God created everything. Everything has a glorious purpose in and through him. Conflict is not metaphysical. It is moral. And therefore it can be resolved. But now we see everything as metaphysically at war with everything else. So we have a cosmos of continual conflict of all elements with no possible solution. This is simply a form of ancient Manichaeanism. What astonishes me is the open hatred of liberals to people who do not agree with them. And they express that hatred in abusive language and terms, denigrative terms, insulting terms. They get up and shout when you try to give a lecture. They interfere with you. Uh, you even you see this to a lesser extent on television and radio because television and radio screens the people who appear. And they try to get only other liberals who agree uh, with them when they invite people on. But this venom yeah. is absolutely new. When we were younger, we remember great arguments with yeah. our with our friends, mm -hmm. with our friends, mm -hmm. and with our good friends, and in the family. I mean, Thanksgiving and Christmas was a time of shouts and table poundings. <clears throat> there was all kinds of raging going on. <laughs> over the political situation and this and that. But it didn't interfere with our affection for one another or our respect for one another. Mm -hmm. That affection and that respect is gone. Yes. And now we're being told it's going to be replaced by a mandated love. You either love or we'll beat your brains in. Well, I don't like to mention names, but I think there's a conspicuous example of someone who will not allow anyone else to express themselves. Michael Tinsley, uh, Kinsley, who at the same time that he refuses to give others the right to speak and is consistently impolite, all the same insists that those who talk about PC, political correctness, are exaggerating they're using anecdotes that are suspect. In other words, he denies that there is any reality to political correctness. So, here you have someone who 
is well known. And some people are irritated by it, others are amused by his arrogant insistence that he alone has the right to speak. Well, I always, I, I'm pleased with the fact that the liberals keep him on. He's the worst possible spokesman for their side yes. that they could possibly select. He loses arguments almost all the time and is totally unaware of it. Yes. He went to very good schools, by the way, uh, which is a commentary on our private schools. The great favorite of Buckley's, who seems to always pick some favorite idiot so that he can... Uh, he can f be superior to them. But he's, he's a, a good specimen of what I was talking about. He absolutely hates anyone who disagrees. We have today highly respected men whether they be Christians or non-Christians, scientists or non-scientists, who when they appear at our major universities are shouted down and the people who do it accuse them of being hate mongers. Intolerance. Yes. Shut you up in the name of tolerance. So we are at a critical point in our history because... Increasingly, it's unwise for any man to agree to appear before an academic community. You can appear safely if it's a group within the community, but not if it's the general assembly. What is happening now, Otto, is that if there's going to be a meeting in a small classroom, it may be only of a group of scholars within that department, you will have groups, minority or majority groups, that will break into the room and insistently break up the meeting. This is kind of like the Red Guard. Well, it's really the way the Nazis got. Uh, it's German. This is what happened in the Weimar Republic. Yeah, but Mount Saitung used to have a Red Guard that would crash, crash meetings. Right. It's, it's in, in, interesting that we are going left, hard left, at a time when the left is collapsing everywhere else outside of China, Cuba, North Korea, and two or three other fortresses. I used to think that uh, people like Kinsley were just uh, cases of arrested motion development that just hadn't grown up yet. Kinsley is making a very good business out of what he does. There's an awful lot of people who agree with him. He's, he's the, uh, on Crossfire, he's there all the time while Pat Buchanan alternates with the other fellow. Uh, he's, for a while he used to have a, he had a column in the Wall Street Journal, but the editorial page editor got rid of him because of his inconsistencies. He's not, he's the sort of fellow that uh, Emerson would have liked in a way because he wasn't, he's not bothered by inconsistency. <laughs> But hatred, we can feel it in the United States. Yes. And uh, you see it in the faces of drivers. Uh, any kind of uh, confrontation that comes up with almost anyone, the person goes into a, a fit of anger. Yes. There's a lot of frustrated anger in this country. 
Before the war, for example, the Indian community had serious problems, as it still does. But it was a relaxed and a friendly community. Their biggest problem was what they did to themselves, individually. Drank too much. Yes. Now they've had a generation or more of people teaching them victimhood and teaching them to hate others. While I was still on the reservation in the late 40s, early 50s, I saw the change beginning in that a handful of ne'er-do-wells were taken away, trained at the expense of some group, and came back spouting hatred and victimhood. They were ridiculed by the older Indians of that time. But those Indians are now uh, pretty much in control across country. They have national groups, and they're full of hatred. Well, every group is using this as a tool. I saw on television news a couple of nights ago that uh, there were some retired uh, Hispanic farm workers down in the valley that were uh, playing cards and drinking in a public park, and they, the town got tired of it, and uh, so they, they took the tables away that they were playing cards on, and they would drink themselves into a stupor. Well, of course, there were mothers, you know, wanted to bring their kids out there and play and so forth, and they didn't feel that this was a good environment for them, so they complained to the city fathers, and the city fathers took the tables out. So their approach was to right away uh, scream and whine uh, that they were being discriminated against because they were Hispanics, mm-hmm. you know. Nothing well, about the, the drinking, the, the public drunkenness, yes. uh, which is a crime, and uh, gambling mm-hmm. for money uh, in public, which is a crime. Well, the Irish and the English today are interesting. Ireland, Erie, Southern Ireland, is supposed to be a free country, uh, or an independent country, rather. But the fact is that they can go into England without a passport and without a work permit and go to work and they can vote in English elections. So Ireland is not really an independent country. It is an appendage of Great Britain. On the other hand, the IRA insists that Britain get out of Ulster and that the whole island be one island. And in the process they've mounted this terrible campaign in which they've murdered men in front of their families, they've, they've bombed whole areas of London, they've committed an unending stream of atrocities. Now, their rationale, of course, is the mistreatment of the Irish through the centuries by the English. That's a historic truth. But we have to come to a cutoff point. We cannot blame living people for dead men's crimes. Sins of the fathers. We, if we want to go into ancestral guilt, then there's nobody safe. And hatred that is fostered by such groups as the IRA. Now, what the IRA is doing to the English uh, 
opinion of the Irish is a great disservice to the other Irish. Most of the Irish couldn't care less. Uh, I'm very well acquainted with them as a group, and although they can harbor, uh, they can harbor uh, grudges longer than a Sicilian, they don't make a profession of it. I mean, there has to be more to life than that. The same thing could be said in spades, with no pun intended, regarding the black minority in the United States. The black minority has not experienced slavery. That happened a long time ago. It happened over a hundred years ago. They, uh, their, their fathers had a harder time than they than uh, they having an easier time than their fathers. If we listen to Tom Sowell and others. The fact is that when we had black neighborhoods, the black people were a lot happier than they are as a result of desegregation and slum clearances and so forth and so on. We've broken up the black community and we've left its poorest people in a swamp by themselves. Look at the hatred that's coming out. Now, if we don't as a country do something about uh, cooling that, everyone says this, why uh, we're going to go the way of India. But instead of cooling it, the courts have decided to codify it mm-hmm. and to accept it as a valid situation. Yes. Our courts have been very, very guilt- much guilty of creating conflict in this country with many of their decisions. And there's no sign on their part of turning around on that. I'm glad that uh, Thomas, our black court justice, is uh, showing signs of being the best judge for at least a generation. He has common sense. Yes. Rooted in experience. Yes. And even when he has agreed with the majority, he's written his own uh, decisions in order to indicate that he differs as the ground of his decision from the others. Well, most, I think, responsible black leaders realize that uh, uh, this victimization, self-victimization, that is thrust on them by some of their outspoken leaders. Uh, it just it keeps them in the swamp. They're never going to get out. They're never going to break the cycle. It has put them in the swamp. I can remember when blacks were very different from what people see nowadays, where they were God-fearing people, hard-working, conscientious people, not given to the uh, kind of behavior that has become commonplace in our time. Well, it's, it must be uh, uh, damaging to the spirit of black people who are trying very hard to lift themselves to see night after night on television just pounded into the public consciousness black people being arrested for uh, drug crimes, uh, face down in the street, bloody, you know. Uh, it's got to bend their soul after a while. Well, of course, all these police shows are very bad. 
uh, I don't think even the Soviets had soap operas glorifying the KGB. And with all due regard to the police, I think they're overplayed. Their role is overplayed, and also the tactics that they're exhibited as using are very dangerous and not good. What about the ch children? Um, I don't suppose, I don't know, a Christian school, of course, is different than a public school. I know that when my daughter was in school in San Diego, uh, that uh, they had black Hispanic girls, or black gangs and Hispanic gangs, both male and female, in which the white students were uh, in the minority and had no place to, uh, no court of appeal. If a collision arose, the white girl was always wrong. Now, I don't know how it is in the Christian school, because you don't have disorders, you don't mm -hmm. have the same kind of a thing. Yeah. And ours is a rather homogenous area up here. The problems uh, that I've heard of in Christian schools uh, that go along racial lines usually tend to come from outside the school, family members who are gang members. So, uh, say an inner city Christian school that'll have uh, quite a racial mix will have perhaps very well-behaved, you know, children in the school. The problem often comes when daddy or, or uncle so-and-so was arrested or, or was shot by the police, and this happens in Christian schools. So uh, the problems are there, but... Uh, when you're coming from a Christian perspective and you have a, you can have a small society in school structured more or less on Christian ethics, you get a lot rid of a lot of those problems. So it really doesn't exist in the Christian no. circle. No. Otto, you were with me when we both spoke in Washington, D.C. about two years ago. And I was reminded of it when you spoke about uh, charges of ancestral guilt. Mm -hmm. Do you recall the young black man who got up and demanded reparations by whites to the blacks? Mm -hmm. I got up and answered him when I spoke because I came after him and you were before him. And I knew that young man. I had first met him at Raleigh, oh, about 20 years before. I believe he was in his first year of graduate studies. Very uh, well-read, uh, spoke excellent English, but it was black English he was speaking there. He sounded semi literate only and he went on and on about uh, reparations to the blacks by the whites of America as justice and I pointed out to him and I think I could have spoken for millions upon millions tens and twenties and thirties maybe a hundred million or two hundred million Americans 
At first, I had nothing to do with it. My parents were immigrants, and they had suffered more than any of his people had. And second, my wife's family, who came from the colonial era, had fought to set him free, and some of them had given their lives in that war. So what call did he have talking about reparations from the whites? Now he was significantly sulky for the rest of the meeting and found two or three at least who felt that I had been uh, unkind. And uh, all I did was call attention to an, a very obvious fact when he had been insulting us all the way through his speech. Now, <clears throat> this is the kind of thing we have today. We have spoiled brats who received too much, and he had been very well educated at the state's expense. He had received grants and the like. Well, <clears throat> their argument is with, with destiny. Mm-hmm. an argument with God when Baldwin the uh, black novelist was in Paris at the end of World War II he went to a bar that was frequented by black African men and he announced that he was a black brother and one of them looked at him and said what tribe mm-hmm. no the first, first question was what is your name and he said, James Baldwin. And they said, that's a white man's name. What tribe? He didn't know, so they threw him out. Now, the black nations of Africa are nations. I could, couldn't go up in a bar in Paris or New York or anywhere else to a Greek and say, I am a white brother. That's racism. hmm And the world is not run by racism. It's run by religion, and it's run by nationality, and it's run by culture. It's not run by skin color. Only only here is the idea that skin color dominates. James Baldwin was determined to hate. And he was a product of scholarships, prizes, pensions, you name it. His father was a black pastor, as I recall it. He had been uh, coddled all the way through his education. Uh, One white teacher had noticed his talent and done everything to help him get ahead. And yet all he could do was to whine about all the hatred he had experienced. Well, it's interesting that he began, uh, at least as far as I was concerned, he began with some outstanding essays in Harper's either Harper's or Atlantic, uh, when he was living in Switzerland. And it wasn't until I got three-quarters way through the first of these that I realized that the author was black. It, it, they were brilliant. But the higher he rose, the more successful he became, the more money he attained, the worse his, rea- his reaction, yes. his resentment rose. And recently I've been going over some of the recent post-war period. Every step that was undertaken under Lyndon Johnson 
especially to expand the influence and the prestige and position of the black race in the United States was greeted with increased violence, Mm -hmm. increased hatred, increased resentment, louder indignation. And of course, this gives you an implicit lesson. If you're dealing with a man who gets worse, the better you treat him. What do you suppose will happen at the end of the road? Yes. Well, Baldwin was perverse, not only in his sexuality, but in all his attitudes. The better off he became, as you said, the better he was treated, the more he was determined to find fault with those who helped him. He did not want to be grateful to anyone. Well, of course, at the root of that kind of hatred is envy. Yes. I went into this business of gratitude. You and I discussed it once, uh, where I had a man whom I did some conspicuous favors to and who became a bitter enemy. And I spoke to an older man at that. I'm running out of older men, by the way. (laughs) And I missed them. I went to an older man and to ask him why. How could this fellow behave that way when I had done these things for him? He said, well, the very fact that you could do them for him humiliated him. Every time he looks at you, he thinks of the fact that you were the guy that was able to do that for him. It reminds him of the situation he was in that you pulled him out of, and it reminds him of the fact that you were able to pull him out of it, and he hates you for that. That's almost oriental. You know, there's some cultures where if you give somebody a gift, you immediately create... A, uh, a debt on their part, and they uh, they resent that. that. Yeah, they don't want that. That's right. Well, there are people who don't want favors. They resent favors. It implies, uh, you know, that you're in a position to do them favors. But we're talking about hatred, and there's an enormous amount of hatred in the United States, at least from my vantage at a time when there's more effort to get along than on an official level than I ever recall. We didn't worry about it when I was a boy. We didn't care if the other guy liked us or not. The hell with him. Well, Thomas Sowell has called attention to the evil done to avoid uh, prejudice and hatred and so on. We have leaned over backwards to help those who are not competent to get into slots where they have no business being. And he feels one of the greatest evils has been helping minority groups get into and stay in medical schools when they don't meet the qualifications. What a crime against the people. And Sol rightly feels, as himself black, that it's a crime against the blacks. It's saying you are not capable, therefore we're going to let you in even though you are inferior. There's a horrible condescension there that is devastating. Well, the idea that a black child couldn't learn unless he sat next to a white child is inherently denigrative. Yes. Sol, by the way, is the one who said that the American government will always provide programs to help the blacks as long as they provide jobs for white liberals. 
Well, it is interesting. Uh, some of the academic community are writing <coughs> about the reorganization of education. Of course, what they have in mind are a few superficial changes that will make life easier uh, for the professors. I have the and, impression and, that... Oh, pardon me. Yes. And being uh, on the left, they cannot deal with Sowell and his comments on education. Sowell's book, Inside American Education, The Decline, The Deception, The Dogmas, is a superb work. <coughs> they won't deal with him. And uh, when they deal with Sykes, who wrote his book, Prop Scam, on education, a very fine one. They dismiss him in a paragraph as though this is uh, a popular treatment that has no significance. It's anecdotal. It doesn't deal seriously with education. So they are unwilling to uh, come to grips with someone like Sol because they can't bring themselves to criticize him because he's black. The one thing that keeps coming up in my mind is that there's a lot of Christians, it seems to me, that believe that it is unchristian to criticize anybody else. It's unchristian to discern yes. error and the part of any minority and that the role of a good Christian is to embrace everybody. Satan himself, they would love to have for dinner. <laughs> Roll well, and play dead. I mentioned this before, but early in the 30s, a, a teacher at a Bible school, seeing that his students were getting infected with the liberal idea of Jesus as loving and mild always, had them classify all the sayings of Jesus, those that were angry and condemned somebody, and those that were loving. And with all the students, it came out about the same. Two out of three were condemnations. So that uh, the typical picture of Jesus is a false one. Well, you can imagine the impression that Jesus made in the world <laughs> didn't come from Uncle Joe. No. No. Well, we fail to realize that Jesus came as the Messiah. And while he didn't announce it publicly, he lived that role. Therefore, as king, he was passing judgment on the generation of his time, on the religious leaders of his time. At one point he said he'd come not to be a judge, but he meant in terms of a civil court. But he was the great judge 
before whom all men will stand, and his remarks pass judgment primarily on those in the religious sphere. We need to have a statute of limitations on hate. <laughs> well, we need to define it. I mean, it started off with Rush saying that there are things we should hate. And that observation is something that seems to have become blurred. If, if you differ in the United States, it's considered hostility. And if you differ loudly, it's considered hate. <laughs> yeah, but the word hate imputes hostility. Yes. I mean, one of the definitions of hate is an emotion of intense aversion. I mean, we all have uh, an intense aversion to, to sin. Yes. Yes, we should hate. Well, the sins that are so commonplace and are taken for granted as though they were nothing to be worried about. When I was a boy, the only thing that could really create aversion in other boys was cowardice. Mm -hmm. We absolutely despised a kid who was too cowardly to fight. We wouldn't associate with him. Ari McMaster, in an excellent article last year, called attention to the fact that the book of Revelation says that the cowards have no place in heaven. That would fit. Yes. And it's a fact that is conveni conveniently forgotten by most people. Well, we saw this appear in the opposition to the Vietnam War. How many of the men who were against the war were against the war or were afraid to go? No one ever took a tally. No one ever took a tally, but we, we certainly ho heard an awful lot of noble sentiments in favor of the poor people in Vietnam. But when the poor people in Vietnam were overrun by communists and put into concentration camps and up against the wall for execution, we didn't hear any of that compassion from some of those loud voices. And I don't know how many that are now calling for us to go to war in Bosnia expect to go. Mm -hmm. I'm sure President Clinton does not expect to go. He's going to sit safely in the White House. Well, tonight's news indicates perhaps there will be peace there. But how real that is, I don't know. We're broke. Yes. We're cutting back our military, and we're going to engage in military adventures. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most paradoxical administrations I've ever seen. Yes. Of course, you know, Bush's rationale for praying for the Persian Gulf War was just, well, the stuff we use, we just won't replace. Is that right? So it was a, a one shot only. So it means we haven't got it to use again. It's gone. We have an administration. We have a, a, a governing class that I haven't... No, the only historical parallel I can think of is the Ancien Regime in France yes. before the Revolution. 
were in the hands of educated idiots. They talk about hatred and they're creating more of it yes. every day. In one way all this talk of, of hatred is consistent. If, if, if religion is insignificant and if religion is said to be a creation of man and everything boils to center around man, if you oppose anything, then it has to boil down to you're opposed to a person. You ha because your morals don't really represent anything. They only represent your feelings towards other people. Not grounded on any standard. No standards valid, but your, but your attitude towards others is what you're really revealing. My personal feeling is, ever since my grandfather straightened me out, was that how I, what I think of other people is none of their business. As long as I treat people properly and justly. I had a, a very efficient engineering writer on the magazine who did his job very, very well. I gave him two promotions and two increases of salary. He never knew that I couldn't stand him. Yes. When it comes right down to it, most people want to get along and be civil to one another. Exactly. Whenever there's a, 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 a crisis, such as an earthquake, or when there was a, a fire and, and a, half the county was evacuated, everybody was unanimous that, that everybody was wonderful to each other and people were going out of their ways to be kind to people they didn't even know. What masquerades as, as hate and racism today is often just suspicion and fear. How many people want to walk up to a minority in a strange city and ask for directions? I you're wouldn't dream of it. You're afraid of what's going to happen. That's not the same as being a racist. And I think part of the reason why black comedians, not the vulgar kind, but the ones who are really funny, people and white people enjoy laughing at them. That's why the the black uh, shows on television, not all our audience is black. White people would like to believe that they can get pleasure out of black people in a normal setting, laughing with them, laughing yeah. with them. Yeah, we have similar experiences. And I think that was one of the attractions of, for instance, Cosby. Not that that really necessarily represented black life, but what he found to be true of children, for instance, was true of all children. And people could identify with, with those attitudes. Well, unfortunately, though, what what was then said is, if we want to stereotype black people as comical and as buffoons, so we're, we're if we want to, to to laugh with them, we're criticized for that as well. There's no way out of the uh, cul-de-sac that we've been led into. Mm -hmm. I know uh, one very fine woman who, until recent years, had lived with, worked with uh, blacks and had many friends among them who can no longer have any association and feels it isn't worth the trouble because it leads to too many problems. She regrets it, 
because all her life she's been at ease among them. But we've created a climate of hatred. We have become almost obsessive in psychoanalyzing any kind of black-white relationship and it isn't worthwhile to some people to try to do anything. There are too many problems attached to such relationships. This country is obsessive about almost everything. I mean, in the view of other people in the world, they think we're all nuts. You know, the Japanese can't understand why we're mad at them for being successful. Uh, you know, they don't understand why we have this difficulty with race relations when when color doesn't exist in in many European countries. I mean, in France, uh, you know, interracial marriage and so forth is considered. Uh, uh, not a problem. No, blacks have always been popular with the French. Well, I don't see any solution to this problem as to others apart from a return to a sound biblical faith. We today are allowing humanists to define people, to define hate, to define love, to define mankind. And the result is, everything is warped and out of joint. But with a biblical perspective, we can overcome this problem. And I don't see any other solution, because in the world outside of Christendom, there have always been problems. Only Christianity has created a culture where people do not have to be of the same tribe to live together, where they can live harmoniously because they are religiously motivated. Well, our time is just about up. Would any of you like to add a few words before we conclude? Well, I'd just like to say that <laughs> when people have tried everything else and it's failed, maybe they should give Christianity a chance. They'd better if they want to live. And I think really in the United States we ought to drop the whole word race. It should be neither in your favor or against you. Yes. Exactly. Well, our time is just about up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.